0: And we start our idea by talking about a proverbial truth if you've read the Proverbs you know that they are a pretty powerful series of teaching in the Old Testament and it's sort of the book of Christian wisdom that's the way we like to describe it they're very short at times very pithy but deeply powerful wisdoms and when they are followed they really have this ability to help us have a deeper sense of, of the fulfillment God desires to bring about in our lives they show us our purpose on earth. They show us meaning. They comfort us during times of, of trial or struggle or affliction. They simply put, the way I like to say it is, they help us to understand the ways that God says life works best. How is it that we can live you know, that, that John 10.10 lifestyle, that abundant, robust, loving Jesus well lifestyle? Well, the Proverbs are a great foundational tool that help us to understand that. And I want to share with you that the premise of what we will talk about today comes from one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 29, 18. And it's a proverb that is very common. You will likely have heard it if you've been a Christian for some time. You have just about guaranteed to have heard it. And if you've not been a Christian, you have likely picked up on this idea. It's very common in the business world. Any type of leadership or organizational structure on earth today in some form or fashion is applying this biblical wisdom. Proverbs 29:18 tells us this where there is no vision people perish and the the better way I think to understand what perishing means is to talk about a life that is unrestrained in other words where there is no thought or forethought or progress in life people often will unravel a little bit and I don't even mean unravel like your life falls off of the deep end for a great many people and I think in the Christian world what tends to happen is we migrate at times towards apathy so there's this interesting statement blessed are those who uh, or where, pe- where there is no vision, people perish. They live unrestrained lives. But blessed are those, the back end of the verse teaches us, that keep the law. And what that simply means is blessed are those who follow the ways of God. And so the idea behind that proverb is that when we as believers, this is really what my concern is today, have nothing to strive for, we will likely drift towards a posture of apathy in our lives. And what this usually looks like for us is we tend to live in the moment at the expense of the eternal. For a great many of us, life is just reduced to the next moment in life. We're just trying to figure out how to get through it. Not recognizing that in the scripture and certainly in God's economy, he is concerned with the whole of our lives, of which each minute counts. Don't hear me kind of contrasting those ideas. I'm just saying, what if we were the type of people who recognized the moment, not at the expense of the eternal, and the eternal not at the expense of the moment. What if we were the type of people who recognized that what I do now actually matters. It matters in this very moment. And what I do now matters for the rest of the moments of my life. And if we're going to understand what Jesus tells us about life on earth, our moments now matter in other people's lives. And this is really true when we talk about our church family. Because in a compounding way, think about this. We're a bunch of individual people. We're all individuals following Jesus together in a church family. We have a, we have a belief about the church that comes from the Bible. And the Bible says that God redeems us into a church family. We are redeemed in him, meaning God dies for our sins. We'll talk about that here in a moment. He helps us to uh, be fully ushered into the goodness and his grace, what it means to know the Father. But then he puts us in these local families called churches so that we can actually learn to love God with each other. And honestly, if you think about it, the nature of all of Christianity is us being a type of people who love God deeply and learn to have an affection for others, whether that is our brother and sister in Jesus or our neighbor who is far from God. And so this proverbial wisdom is what I'd like us all to have in mind as we prepare our hearts for what we're speaking about today. Because this is the day, or these two weeks anyways, these are the two weeks where we talk about vision provision, what God has for our church. And i like to say that this is sort of the annual talk, uh, State of the Union Address, you might say, uh, to put in biblical terms, the State of the Local Church Address in God's Kingdom. It's a day where we remind ourselves of, of who we are and where God has us going and it really does serve as a bit of a compass to evaluate where we are as individuals in Jesus regarding our discipleship, how are we following him, and how are we helping others to follow him. And so in light of that truth, I really want to talk about the key reason God put this church on earth, our church specifically. He's put a lot of great churches on earth, but obviously the one that I'm most concerned with at all times is ours. You know, in 2010, God started restoration. So we've been here just shy of eight years. And there was a foundational truth that drove much of what we did. And it is the one I share with you today. Understanding this is important because I deeply believe that if we, if we sort of embrace it with our minds, if we experience it in our hearts and we live it out with our hands, it becomes the key to continued health and future growth. And I want to qualify what I mean by growth. By growth, I simply mean... Uh, typically in, in you know, m- the modern world, growth is always associated with some type of a number, and I'm not saying that that doesn't matter, but I'm saying growth has a far more significant, un- a- 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 there's a far more significant premise to it when you understand the scripture. And by growth, I simply mean, what, what, is, what is God's view of our church? Does God see our church as a place where he desires to see folks who are far from him come to Jesus? Does he trust us with that? And I believe he does. We've had great, great and wonderful stories of men and women finding Christ here. And does he feel like this is a place where those of us who are already in Jesus can actually grow in him? So remember, even though the church ultimately belongs to God, this is his body, um, he, for whatever reasons, says that it is our body to steward, meaning he gives us an incredibly important role in it. And so in the truest sense, and just like a family, we all have a major role to play in order to keep the family healthy and stable. And this is why I want to look at Luke 15 today, because it helps us to understand what is perhaps the most important role that we have in the body. And this leads me to the first and really the only truth that I want to share with you this morning. It'll be behind me. I pray you will process it with me this morning and think about it in the days that follow. Luke 15 teaches us a lot of things, but I think the driving idea is this. Because God compassionately pursues us, he wants us to passionately pursue the people who are far from him. That's what's going on in Luke 15. And Luke 15, if you've read it before, is a famous parable it's a famous story, a powerful story, series of stories, if you will. But the one that is most famous out of the three is the story of the prodigal son who was lost and found by the father. That's how that story wraps up. And this story is all the more powerful when you see why Jesus told it and what led up to it. This is why we read it in its entirety. And keep in mind, that's just one, that's one teaching in the context of a story that's going on in the life of Jesus Christ. And so what, what's happening here in Luke 15 is, Jesus is having his daily conversation with some of the religious elite and the dialogue begins in the first two verses of Luke 15 when Luke tells us that all kinds of sinners, all kinds of people who were very far from God were, were actually approaching Jesus to figure out who God was and Luke tells us that some folks who uh, were already uh, you know, self-professing religious elite is essentially what he calls them, the religious folk uh, there's nothing wrong with religion. We deeply value it. But here he's highlighting this sort of a negative connotation behind this. He's talking about people who are sort of proud, who in the name of God have actually decided that they don't need God. And what he says here is there's a religious elite. Uh, you know them well. They're the Pharisee types. They've had a problem with Jesus for a long time. And here they see Jesus being kind to those who are far from God and sharing with them how to, how to be made right in God. And he says that in a derogatory way, they mutter that this, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They weren't saying this in a good way. They were saying this in a very negative way. And ironically, what's happening here is they don't see that the people who are far from God, who are coming back to God, they don't see that actually as a good thing. They saw it as a bad thing. And in, if, you, if you kind of read the story of Jesus, you know, at some point, they actually begin to feel like this is undermining God's plan on earth. There are places where they tell Jesus like, hey, you know, you're compromising God's holiness by living this way. Now this is a very common accusation that we see muttered a lot today and it often comes from folks who don't understand God's grace and by grace I simply mean there are times where we have people who take advantage of God's grace that's not healthy we call that cheap grace here and then there are times when people in the name of grace get to the place where they think they don't need it anymore they think they're so put together that they don't need God's grace and I'm telling you both of those places whether it's cheap grace or you become your own savior in your life and follow God without his son both of those are places that really move us away from the heart of who God is. And so in response to this, Jesus confronts this attitude and he starts to correct their misconceptions through this idea of God's compassion. And to do so, he tells these three stories, one after the other. And these stories, as we've just read, are of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the point in all of those stories is that something that really mattered to someone was lost. There, there's this object of great value And there is somebody who at some point in the story has lost it. And in each story, what happens is when when the item that was lost comes, comes home, when it is found, there is this incredible rejoicing that takes place. The person who lost something, when they realize it has been found, gets to this place where they're just ecstatic because what was lost is now found. And so Jesus uses these lost and found stories to show us this profound but often neglected truth for some Christians about how we understand our own lives, before God and those that are in our lives that are still far from God. This is a story that applies to us and it applies to how we apply it to others, no pun intended. What is the truth? I'm glad you asked. That all people in the world without Jesus are lost until they return to God through Jesus. And by lost, I don't mean that there are not people who are far from God who, who are not successful, organized, or put together. Lost in the context of the Bible doesn't always mean like clueless. It can at times, but that's not always what we're talking about here. Lost simply goes back to that idea of Proverbs. We can have, some people can have really good lives without God on earth, but it is not the type of life. It is not the fullest life. It is not the eternal life that God says we can have with Jesus. And so you can, in God's good graces, live on this earth for 80 or 85 years and never pay him any attention and do okay. But God is saying, man, life is long on earth. And what if if you paid me much attention during that time? And what if you recognize that? To know me on this earth means that you know me for all eternity. And you know me for all eternity with other men and women who also love me and desire to pursue me. It's life with a lowercase l without Jesus. And so unlike the religious elite whom Jesus is correcting, we see this contrast in the way we view folks who are far from God. And keep in mind that there are times every one of us has had a season in life where we've been far from God. Whether that mean, means we were like quintessentially lost we had no desire to know who Jesus is. And for those of you that have been Christians for some time, you know, you know we're in a season of winter now in our, in our culture. But there are times when, when our pursuit of Jesus is less like the sunrise and more like the sunset. And that can create a distance in our hearts between us and him. And so farness from God can happen in all seasons of life. But the point Jesus drives home here is that wherever there is drifting, wherever there is the, the beginning of lostness, whether that means we are found in Christ but have lost our way, or we are not in Jesus and are just lost, there is a compassion God shows us. There is a desire he has for us to not remain lost, but to be found in him again. He doesn't want us wandering in the cul-de-sac of life. He wants us firmly nestled in his, the grace of his son, Jesus. And what this simply means is he has a great compassion for people no matter where they are in life. He has a great compassion for us because God wants people no matter where we are from, uh, in him, especially those who are far from him, to be found and restored to him. He wants us to be close with him. And when that happens, Jesus tells us, when we are restored to God, when those whom we care about are restored to God through Jesus, he says, all of heaven rejoices. All of heaven. Now, I want to kind of history up here a little bit. In October of 2010, we planted this church to express this compassion of God revealed in Luke 15 to all people. This was one of the driving impetus of, of why we did what we did. And today we're gathered today to celebrate this, to think about... God's kindness to us in these years past to think about the present and the future state of our church family. And I just want to say that a major part of what we celebrate today, the thing that I love most about our church is that it is a place of compassion. It's a place where people genuinely can, can pursue Jesus and have people exhort them in that journey. And so God has put churches like this one on earth to proclaim the message of love and forgiveness of sin through Jesus. That's the main reason we're here. That manifests itself in a number of expressions, but the driving reason we're here is Luke 15. And this passage clearly and passionately communicates God's c- concern for people, and it really evidences why we've done this. And I want you to think about this from a personal level. When I wrote this message two weeks ago, I had to think about this as, from the angle I'm speaking about. And I'm thinking about this from, the, from our church, but also as me being a, par- a partner in our church. In 1998, I with great trepidation and a utter amount of confusion, I found out that God was leading me to be a pastor. I was a Christian about 12 months at that point. I had a pretty radical conversion, and it was amazing seeing God begin shepherding this call on my life. And it became so serious to me that I gave my entire adult life to this. This is what I have done, and it is what I want to die doing, serving God in this church. And what I love about our church is that many of you have heard the same voice of God. You're not necessarily pastoring from the front of the room but you are pastoring in your own unique ways. God has set you apart in the same way to serve him in the places he sent you. You have responded to his call to be an agent of his goodness and grace. And in this regard, we are, we are in this together. And that's why this idea, this Ephesians 4 idea, which was foundational in our, in our governing documents and our understanding of who we are as a church, this idea that God has made every member, every partner, every person a minister, is something substantial. It represents a major Christ-centered accomplishment in our church. And in many ways, more than I can share this morning, God has blessed us in some, in some pretty awesome ways. He's blessed our efforts. And we want to recognize that for sure. But my desire today is not to just put a, a period on the end of that statement. We want to recognize there's a future story for us. And while it's great to be able to praise God together for, for his grace and his compassion in our lives individually and in the lives of those he's put in our lives, we want to make sure that we don't ever, that doesn't ever become cold. That the desire, the, the recognition that God desires us to grow more deeply in him and he desires us to show others grace and compassion in our communities, in our lives, and our workplaces, we don't ever want that burden to grow cold. In fact, I would say a, a, if we have a coldness towards being compassionate towards others, it might mean that we are slightly chilling in our understanding of God's compassion towards us. And that's why this passage is really important to the future work of our lives in Jesus and our church here in Port Orange. Because Luke 15 teaches us that God has always pursued and been compassionate about people who are far from him, people like you and like me. And it highlights how God has set apart people just like you and me to be the hands and feet of his grace and compassion in our natural spheres of influence. This is what Luke 15 is teaching. And in Luke 15, Jesus drives home this point that God desires the people who are lost to be found. He wants that which is lost to be returned to him. We are his creation, fallen and as marred as we are. He has shaped us and crafted us with his own hands and breathed life into us. And he desires that we, we sort of rest thoroughly and confidently in the hands that have made us. And so these three stories are profoundly powerful about God's view of people. In these stories, we learn something deep about God's compassion something that we apply to our own lives so we'll know how to experience it, but also be able to share it with others. And what ties these stories together is not simply that something was missing. You know, in every biblical text, we can point out a problem. There are tons of them. But what I love about Scripture is that where there is typically an identification of a problem, there is also a grace connected to it that shows us how to overcome the problem. And this story is no different. In each story, something that really matters is missing. The story doesn't end there. Rather, what we start to see as Jesus kind of masterfully unfolds these parables is that the things that were missing really mattered to someone. He's helping us to understand that somebody took note of that which was missing. And consequently, in each story, the owners of those items go to great lengths to get them back. Quick paraphrase here. In the case of the sheep that was lost, okay, you have a personal negligence here. We know the story of sheep in Scripture is often that they require a, a shepherd to keep them from running off of the cliff. To keep them from being assaulted by the wolves, from meandering in the wilderness. The story of the sheep is essentially that without a good shepherd, they will stray and drift because of their own negligence. That's what's happening. But we learned that the shepherd here is so concerned for the sheep that he goes out into the field and looks for the sheep. In the case of the silver coin, which is lost due to carelessness, here's a person who who values these monetary items and, you know, accidentally loses one. In this case, we don't just see a lost coin. What happens is this woman frantically tears the house apart, searching for it until she finds it. She's turning over pillows and trying to figure out where it is. There's not a recognition that the coin is lost. Hope it works out. There's an understanding that the coin is lost and I must pursue it. And the third story, the one that matters most in all of this, because it starts to talk about people, it's a little different. And it's where Jesus begins to make his point. Because you see in the last story, the son is lost because of his own stubbornness. And I find it interesting that each one of these parables sort of highlights some of the ways we can be far from God. You know, we can be stubborn and resist his ways. We can be negligent and walk away from him. We can be careless in our, our treatment of him. And what happens is these are all things that, that drift us into a coldness of faith, not necessarily a warm one. And so here you have this third one, this, this stubbornness. And the son is lost because he decides to, of his own choice, walk away from God the Father. And he has to actually be brought to his senses by God the Father in order for him to come back. And the story, anyway, is the Father is obviously the, that's the master analogy here, is that this, the way the Father treats the Son is the way God treats people. And the fact that God even has compassion on this young man when he's treated him this way is a great evidence of what we mean by grace. It is that God looks at our sin, and believe me, he grieves it, but he made a way for us to overcome it in his son. And so he drowns him with this compassion, which ultimately wins him over. He moves, the, the loss moves from lostness back to foundness, if you will, in large part because of the compassion that it, the son recognizes. And in Luke 15, 20, we read a few things. There's, there's this descriptive list that Jesus gives us of the way the father treats the son. Here's what he says. He says that the, while the son is gone, he is watching for him. When he sees his son, he starts to have compassion on him. He then runs to him. It's sort of like he can't control himself. The father sees the son and just wants to hug him. And that's what he does next. He embraces him. And then he greets him with this joyful kiss and then throws a party for the return. In each story, each story, there's this unifying theme. We see that the lost items mattered so much to their caregivers that they went to great lengths to find them. They went to great lengths to usher them back into present the presence of the father. That w- the owner really ma- it, 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 These items mattered so much to their owners that they just were excited to see them come home and although Jesus gives us this truth in the form of an analogy it is meant to reveal a very serious spiritual reality about humanity's relationship with God and our responsibility as Christians remember parables are glimpses from heaven they are the heavenly ways God desires things to work on earth these are not just abstract stories they're stories meant to drive home a faith truth for us and simply put in this passage There are people who are just like these lost objects in our lives. At times, we might even function like these objects. For various reasons, we've strayed from God. For various reasons, we know people who have strayed from the God who loves them or are stubborn and resistant to him. And the moral of this story is that those lost people, those folks who are not found, are not an afterthought to God. They are, and I want to sort of rub us up in the mix here, We were, when we were far from God, a primary thought to God, a major priority for God because he deeply loves those who are lost and wants them to come home to him in Jesus. That's the point of what Jesus' work is leading to. He makes the way for us to move from darkness into light, to move from that which is lost to that which is found. It is a summation in verse 32 of this whole parable. There is great rejoicing because that which is lost is now found. And so Jesus' words show us God is deeply concerned about reaching people who are far from him. And because of that, he is compelled to relentlessly pursue them. That's the whole story of the Bible. You know that, right? It's God essentially pursuing a people who are constantly trying to move away from him. And there's these amazing stories in Scripture where we see what happens when folks stop running and they get deeply close to God. He starts doing pretty powerful things in their lives. God cares about that which is lost. And my favorite part of this passage, and I don't say that in a a, a trivial way, but my favorite part of this passage is what we read about when Jesus tells us what happens when the lost are found. What he tells us is that all of heaven essentially rejoices. And that idea of rejoicing is sort of like if you hear one thing that I say this morning, I pray is this. I'm convinced that that compassion burden That desire we should have to see if we as a church ever stop rejoicing when those who are far from God find him, I really think that will say something about the heartbeat, the pulse of our church. And I'm not saying that's the pulse of our church, please hear me. But I'm saying we should really recognize that in this passage of scripture, there are a group of religious people who have lost this joy. They actually are now becoming a roadblock for people to come to Christ. And I want us to pray deeply this year about what it means to to continue to grow in a burden for people and to continue to love people in the way that Jesus has loved us. And this simply put is where the real challenge of this passage is for us. This is where we move from the story to the application of what it means when we leave this room. Because this whole teaching is given to a group of religious people who believe that they have their act together. They believe that they know this, that, that they actually have sort of mastered this idea. But the problem here is they've never been moved to the place where they, they actually live this. What Jesus is pointing out is that this cognitive understanding of the way God loves people is actually not a practical reality in your life. And that disconnect of sort of what God shares with us about himself as he reveals who he is to us, we call this good theology, right? God's theology is meant to shape our life. When we understand the theology of compassion or the theology of God's goodness or his justice or his mercy or his grace, whatever it is, our understanding of who God is is meant to reshape us in those areas. And what happens here is the religious elite that Jesus addresses in this passage, they really show us something about Christianity. They show us that we have to be mindful to not just ever gloss over these verses, to not just ever embrace theological truth disconnected from the practical application of what that truth is meant to show us in life. Theological truth is incredibly important. We don't have an application without it. That's what we believe here. We believe if there is no central truth to define our lives around, the gospel of Jesus Christ, then who knows what we're applying? So don't hear me disconnecting these ideas. Please hear me saying we want to emphasize both deeply. We want what we understand about God to shape who we are in the Lord and what we do for those who are far from him. And this is super important for us to understand right now because it really hits on how we understand over this next year our our understanding of and our sort of desire to embrace the mission of God. You know, Scripture talks a lot about the mission of God, and I want to point out a couple of things that are important about our individual and church role in God's mission. The Bible is pretty clear that the, the way God has chosen to pursue those who are far from him is through us. The, the agent he set apart to, to, to share his goodness to the world is us. He works in us through the power of his Holy Spirit in local churches to help the world understand Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. And so contrary to popular sentiment, I say these things softly, but I mean them sort of firmly. Contrary to popular sentiment, it is not going to be through more church programs that people grow deeply in Jesus. I'm not saying they're bad. We have several of them here and we have a few we want to launch this year, but hear me. If we ever think that programs are what help people to find and grow in Jesus, we miss the mark because remember programs are run by people. They're run by us because God has set us support to do this. So ultimately no matter what the program is, as great as it is, kids, students, our community group ministries, our time on Sunday, at the end of the day, it's people laboring in those things that bring about change. So we don't want to devalue them, but we want to make sure that what God values most in them is us. It's not by expecting, this is a true statement, especially when we talk about the nature of worship, as we continue to move towards a culture that's rapidly secularizing and has no place for this unless they are truly in Jesus. The ideas of cultural Christianity are fading radically, especially on the east coast of Florida. They've been Really, the east coast of the whole United States is pretty substantial when you look at this fact. But in Florida, you know that the whole east coast of the United States lives here. Like, I think one of you are actually from Florida and you're afraid to admit it because everybody from here is from somebody someplace else. So we have this beautiful, like, cornucopia of ideas and thoughts. And I just want to remind us that all those folks who are not with us right now or not with another church right now, all those folks who who are living their lives disconnected from Jesus, it is very unlikely they're just going to walk up into this theater on their own profess faith in Jesus, and then go baptize themselves in that pond across the street from the theater. That's likely not going to happen. Now, please don't hear me saying that we need to continue to invest in people and invite them. Don't hear me saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying at the end of the day, what we're investing in, it's a person investing in a life and inviting them to meet other lives. So we don't ever want to forget that it's not just the shell of what we do here. It's the heart of what we do here that matters. And I'll take this a step further. It's not just enough to talk about ideas like this to identify a clear truth in scripture and then go home and pray about a truth like this and then really do nothing about a truth like this. Although we deeply value identifying truth, wrestling with these truths in our hearts and praying before God about them. We're for all those things. But at some point, I think it's fair to say if we wrestle with these truths and pray for God to make them a reality in our lives based on Luke 15, he's gonna do that. It's at that point we need to know how we're gonna respond. Because if we see a truth like this and we can hear it, or not even desire to, to wrestle with it, it likely means we, we might have some of the confused fate that the Pharisees were being uh, corrected for in Luke 15. There could be some of that in us. And we're all people. There's no judgment in this statement. I'm just saying our, our compassion can, can come and go. Sometimes our circumstances in life can define it. But our desire is that we actually be a people who deeply know who Jesus is and want other people to actually know it. Very, 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 very important. There are so many beautiful truths in this passage, but the one that I just want to point to you here is that when, when heaven rejoices, it is because somebody has come to faith on this earth. So think about this. February 1997, okay, that's when I became a Christian. Heaven had a party for me. You think about the day you came to Jesus. Whether you have a day, some people have a day, other folks just have this season. They sort of, they, they have this place in life where they know what's happened, but they can't really nail down a day. They just believe concretely they're in Christ whenever that moment was, all of the heavenly hosts threw a party for you. Heaven rejoiced. That's what Jesus tells us here in Luke 15. When the lost became found, God was happy. And so were all the people looking down on this earth. That is an awesome thing to think about. And I I wonder if we really had an emotional aptitude for that, if it would change the way we see people. I wonder if you think that sometimes the labor that you provide, the, the, the work, the sweat of the kingdom of God, right? The, the fidelity to, to build his kingdom in this room, in these rooms, in our environments, outside of this room. All of the stuff that someday seems like, what's it for? I've been talking to this person forever and they still don't care. All of those things matter to God. Everything you do matters to God. And God is working through all those things. And what if at the end of our mind was this idea that we labor for the fact that God in heaven has set us apart to do this and ultimately... When our faithfulness is used by God, remember, we cannot do anything without God as the king. But when God indwells our faithfulness and does powerful things through us, God is deeply joyful for those who grow in him, take next steps in him. And I'll say this pretty dogmatically, God is also pleased with you. You know, if you think about it, Jesus says the one sentence we should want to hear, when we stand before in heaven, any of you remember what that verse is in the Bible? Well done, done, good and faithful servant. Now, boy, we live in a world where service is like off the deep end, where the idea of laboring for God's kingdom at times is often it's viewed as a hobby. But what Jesus says is the greatest thing we can hear when we stand before him is that we have faithfully served him. Imperfect ways, you know, messed up times, I get it. But at the end of the day, we stand before him and he says, you did well, you followed me, and you tried to serve me. That is a beautiful thought. That is an affirmation. That is a moment of eternity we should long for. But that statement from Jesus happens now. What we do in these moments dictates that statement from him. And that's why what he's saying here is that we should be burdened for this. And I just want to gently remind us that if we're ever at the place in our faith where we are not burdened with this, where we forget the, the celebration rhythms in heaven for why we do what we do, then maybe it's time for us to ask God in his goodness and his grace to, to rewarm our hearts towards him and to help us understand what has caused them to grow cold. And this is where we begin to wrap up this morning. I want to leave you with two very, uh, th- these are sort of next step actions that you can embrace this morning and over these weeks. They're, they're the way that we actually start to press into this reality. Two next steps I want to share with you. And the first is deeply rooted in praying about what we've spoken about this morning. If you want to be on the path that Jesus lays out in Luke 15, I want to first ask you to pray with me in asking God if you live your life in a way where the people you come in contact with really feel as if they matter to you. And when I say we, I mean we, pray with me. Let's do this together. And what I simply mean by this is that think about your life, think about your schools, think about your workplace, think about your family, think about your hobbies, think about your social media sites. Think about whatever you do, wherever you do it, and whomever you do it with. Wherever you have contact with people, ask yourself, do those people leave the interaction you've had with them feeling like you care about them? Do they walk away with the same type of impression the folks investigating Jesus in this passage had? There is something that is encouraging about their time with Jesus. There is something that is challenging about their time with Jesus. There is something that is causing them to think about their lives in light of Jesus. Do people feel like they matter to you? Do they matter to me? And I want to explain why this is an action step for us this year. Over these past months, uh, in, in somewhat substantial ways, I have really been asking God to help me understand what makes restoration, restoration. And in my prayer time, lots of things came up and I've had a lot of dialogues with you about this, but there are some themes that sort of surface. In conversations with trusted inputs, uh, dialogue with those of you at lunch tables and you know coffee tables as we're chatting, in community group ministry, the common thread that really seems to be a deep connection for a great many people is a connection to other people. That's sort of what. It's not the only thing, but it is essential part of our bone marrow here. In other words, people connect here because they feel like they belong to something, and that translates into something. Whether we fully are aware of what that is, what I want us to be full aware of uh, of what that is is that it's a, it's a feeling of what it means to be mattered by to matter in God's eyes. As God's people help other folks understand that they really matter. I read this this week in a in a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It was interesting. I intended to read a few chapters of this book. It's a book actually on revival and I got through three paragraphs of the introduction because what he said was one of the greatest things that impedes the movement of God is when the congregant, and that's not a word we're, we're using in a lowly term here, when the congregant forgets that what they do matters, that they matter deeply to God and God has set them apart for a purpose. What he was saying was is when we get to this place where people stop thinking that what they do matters, it's one of the ways that God sort of rescinds his spirit a little bit because he can't work through us at that point, or at least maybe he chooses not to. Think about this. When we connect with people, we want them to know that they matter. And the more I thought about this, the harder it became for me to see our church family through any other lens. There are other lenses that our church, but this is a pretty significant one. In many ways, this reality is what has brought us to this junction we sit at today. And I'm convinced pressing into that relational reality, which finds its root in Luke 15, it is our future. And this is why I want to ask you to commit to a season of prayer with me, to really ask you, ask God, ask us, do we pursue people who are far from God in our everyday life circles like God has pursued us? And after you talk to those people, whether it's just a shoulder to cry on, an encouraging word, the discussion of a football or a baseball game, whatever it is, whatever the interaction, if they walk away from that interaction, seeing Jesus a little more deeply, even if they can't articulate that reality, they just know something's different. And that different is the fact that God is working through you. That's what's happening in Luke 15. Something is different about Jesus. And people are investigating him because of it. That promise is when that that action Jesus uh, shows to the world is when he's given us. He's given us his spirit to live the same way. And so connected to this prayer is a step that I want you to take right now. Last year, for those of you who wanted it, and in very small ways, we began offering uh, training in this area. There's been a lot of dialogue about what it means to be a disciple and disciple others in this way. And that's been encouraging to see unfold, but this year we want to sort of unravel that a little further. I want to ask you if you really have a desire to know what it means to follow God in the ways we're speaking about now and to pursue others in this way. If you want to deepen this root, we want to do some training this year, some official training and that training starts with what we're talking about today it's figuring out how what we speak about today it's applied in our lives and how we live it out in our world and through community groups that's the primary mechanism we use here that's where we begin through some of our community groups we're going to be discussing these very ideas and for those of you that are not in a community group but maybe say you know i'm not ready for that step but i'm interested in this i'd I'd like to know what you mean by this i want to let you know wherever you are in a group or not in a group If this is something that intrigues you, and I pray it does, please take that connection card in your chair right now and just write your name on it and the word interested in the comments section on the back. Turn that in when you leave this place. We had a really good turnout last week of people submitting this. And in the weeks that follow, as we sort of get a a name pool here, what we're going to do is lay out some steps on how you can take this next step. And my prayer is that you really would be interested in this, interested in figuring out what it means to, to take your next step for Jesus based on the compassion He reveals to us in Luke 15. So important. And if you need some time to think and pray about that, then do that. But don't let this week pass without letting us know that. If you're interested in any way or just have questions, let us know in that card right now. Deepen your faith in this area. It's my encouragement to you this morning. Very important. Let's pray about this. And let's take a step to explore it if we really feel like that's something God wants in our lives. And I believe it is. Secondly, uh, pray with me in asking God if you are seriously supporting God's mission of compassion with your life and your resources. This is sort of the culmination of everything I'm saying this morning. Because if you think about it, if we, if we understand this truth about God, and then we begin to ask God to work in our lives, we have to sort of start thinking about this now. What do we do if God actually provides spaces for us to do something here? What if God actually uses us in a way that we actually have an opportunity to respond here, to do something? So in the Bible... These ideas of setting apart our life, our time, our talents, our treasures, these are analogies we use here a lot, they are areas that are often, uh, they're very much requested by God from us, meaning he tells us to portion areas of our life off for him in here. And I I think the word portion, I don't want us to misunderstand it. I don't think when the Lord says set aside time, set aside resources, set aside your life for me, he means that we sort of sliver off pieces of life. He's not saying, if you're at 15% of your life with me, we're good. What God wants us to understand is this integration of life and faith, meaning the whole of who we are is shaped by Jesus. And out of that, we see our time and our money and our generosity and our efforts towards other people. God is shaping what those portions look like. We're not just automatically impeding God to speak into them by saying, here's 6% of me here. We treat ourselves like the stock market. I got a 4% rise here. The Dow's good. I'm good with God. That's not exactly what God is saying. What he's saying is is he wants us to be on this perpetual journey with him, growing in him. And part of the ways that we grow in areas of our lives is by stepping back and understanding God desires us to give him our whole life. That's what we commit to when we first believe in Jesus, and we spend our days growing in all of these areas. And so some of the things in this area, especially when we talk about time and money, I've shared this with you before, these tend to be somewhat controversial subjects in the American psyche, but they are not controversial in the scriptural psyche. They are truly things that God desires us to to ask if we're serving him with them. And remember, everything I say now, everything I say now includes this church, but it also includes what we do when we leave this place because there are going to be places to use your time and your resources that exceed the boundaries of our church. I mean, don't get me wrong. We want fidelity here, but God is going to work through us no matter where we go. And so the key I'm talking about here is that we really are faithful to this truth in the places he has planted us. And so personal time and resources can be very sacred commodities. uh, And I think they are often asked for by God because they are places in our lives that have the high potential to become idols. They can truly replace Jesus as the king of our lives. If you go and talk to people, what you'll find is the majority, the majority of challenges, issues in life, they're usually rooted in these two areas. Uh, A lot of our emotional, our our relational challenges, you'll hear people say like, well, there's just no time for me. I feel like I'm I'm abandoned. I'm being neglected. That's a time issue. Or, you know, if you're so racked up in debt, you know, that you're sort of living to pay the bank and you can't actually see uh, time and money as tools that serve you, not the other way around, what happens is those things become gods in and of themselves. And in order to survive in life, you have to serve those things. That is not the life God wants for us. Those are tools he's put on earth to serve us as we serve him. And so we should not be surprised that God unashamedly asks us to set aside some of these things that matter most to us in the same way that he, has mat- he sets aside what matters most to him for us. I want you to think about this. The nature of Jesus dying for us is that God gives his all to us. Now, God is God. But what I'm saying for us is that uh, we will never perfectly give our all to God. There's no naivety in what I'm saying here. But I do think the way we hear that statement from Jesus when we are with him in heaven is by really striving to ask the questions What does my life look like before God? In the New Testament, God describes our lives as like offerings, like in the same way the Israelites were offering up stuff to God as a pleasant aroma, a sacrifice. That's how God describes our lives. He doesn't see any distinction in the sacrifice and the obedience. And there's something very pretty about that. Your life is an aroma to the Lord when it serves him in these ways. One that brings a smile to his face when he inhales the presence of your life. And so for the Christian, the way we use time, talents, and treasure, Bottom line, direct reflection on how deeply we understand God's, God's compassion, God's gospel. They are the concrete way we engage in God's mission. And our faithfulness to them or lack of faithfulness to them really begins to dictate what our mission and ministry is. And this is true not just with money. Don't hear me just talking about tithing right now. I'm talking about our spiritual gifts too. This is something I want to address in full in our trainings. God has given each one of us a gift, something to use for him. To serve him, he's wired you uniquely to do something for him, to be something for him. And when you understand what that is and press into that, something powerful can happen. So if you're here saying, I didn't even know I had a spiritual gift, or I'm not sure what it is, or that's something that sounds interesting, write interested on the back of that card now. We're going to address that. This principle is true for our time, it's true for our treasures. When we look at God's desire to practice sacrificial generosity with our money, Typically what we what people understand this as is is tithing and there's a big part of that that is tithing our church is here because of our financial giving our church is here because of uh, the labor and the effort we put into this it's it's our church and (coughs) I say this as we wrap up what I say to you this morning is there's a bit of a disclaimer with it that these ideas of guilt and motive guilt to motivate never been the DNA of our church (coughs) this idea of cheerful giving generous giving cheerful serving these are the ideas that jesus teaches us about in the scripture it's what paul says validates our giving of time talent and treasure and so at our church it's not that we don't ever want to talk about these ideas it's just that we want to talk about them in a way that really helps us to understand the heart of them and if you want me to keep talking about them i need to get a sip of water hold on a second (coughs) feel like that was my Marco Rubio moment there did you see that clip a couple years ago when he drank his water in the middle of his speech sorry about that so this idea is something that I want to begin talking about more regularly what it means to equip our body to know who God has made us to be and how we use everything he's given us to serve him and so through messages like this conversations in community group individual counseling training whatever it looks like I just want to encourage you to get engaged in this because in every church when it comes to time and giving people usually fall into one of three categories these are general categories that are really true so please hear them and there's no judgment in this it's just a place that gives us a bearing to think in a lot of churches there are people who give of themselves consistently and that has really been the predominant story of restoration and I'm deeply thankful for that God has raised up a great group of people here from day one that really serve God well in all areas and then there are people who give of themselves inconsistently and there are a number of reasons for this maybe it's just that you didn't know this maybe it's just that it's not a priority maybe it's sort of like there's a benevolent absent-mindedness we just think that everything happens here without us but the truth is it doesn't there's lots of reasons that inform that but there are also people who give inconsistently of themselves and then there are people this is the hardest of the three but there are people who consistently give little or nothing of themselves and the same is true in this area that might be a discipling issue um, it's funny sometimes uh, I over the years I've talked to people who who didn't even understand that the Bible has a lot to say about our time and our money They didn't even know that and that's okay But that's all the more reason why what I said on the front end of this is important Are we a church that helps people to understand what it means to live in the fullness of God? And then there are just some people who maybe don't care or don't know or just have never thought about it. whatever it is these categories can really stand true and again I say I don't mean them to sound harsh it's just that my hope that we'll bring some clarity to the importance of this subject when it comes to our future. It's my hope in all areas of our pursuit of Jesus we fall into the first category. And that's very important right now because there's a growing conversation at our church about what it means for us to have a, a more permanent space, which we look at regularly. We're constantly looking for something that we can be more anchored in. And until God provides that space, you know, we will have to do our best here. And by best I mean God's done great things here. There's a message coming in a a couple of months on the theology of space. I shared this with you last week. I want to talk about the importance of understanding how God uses space to move his kingdom forward. But don't forget that more important than space is the people in them. That's us. And so this conversation today is about the men and women in this space. It's the conversation about the men and women who have uh, an ability to be compassionate with people because God has been compassionate to them. So as we close this morning, ask yourself, think about these next steps, about praying before the Lord about your compassion. Think about these next steps steps about your spiritual gifting and your resources. Are you serving God in the ways he has created you to serve him? Ask God what category you fall in, in the three that I just mentioned. Ask God to show you if you you truly live as if everyone matters to you, like they matter to God, when it comes to how you serve him. And if you realize today that you're, you're consistent in these areas, or inconsistent, or wherever you fall in between those two poles, I just want to encourage you to not let what God shares with you fall on deaf ears. If you realize there's a next step for you, whether it's time, talent, or treasure, take it. If you're saying, I think there's a step, but I don't even know what that means, ask somebody, let us help you here. Let us help you to grow in consistency in these areas and watch how God will use and continue to use your life. Remember, God is a good God. He's shown us great things. He is something great to us. So let's pray with all of our heart and soul that we believe deeply there are greater things to come, that God through our lives at this church wants us to continue to show compassion to each other and our neighbor (coughs) pray with me this morning